hard-hitting medical truth, cutting through conflict and confusion to the understanding you're searching for. Join Dr. Peter McCullough, world-renowned medical expert and practicing physician for this edition of the McCullough Report. Your life may depend on it. Let's get real. Let's get loud on America Out Loud Talk Radio. This is the McCullough Report, and I'm Dr. Peter McCullough. It's a great pleasure. I'm actually on scene at my new practice in McKinney, Texas. I've been welcomed in by a terrific doctor who I've known for several years now, and many of you know him actually because of his contributions in the field, Dr. Brian Proctor. Dr. Proctor uh, attended uh, initially undergraduate at the Naval Academy, very prestigious to get in there. I know it because my son had gotten in there uh, several years ago. Uh, he finished undergraduate at the University of Texas Longhorns in Austin, Texas. He went on to medical school at Texas Tech Medical School in Lubbock, and that's one of the medical schools that has multiple campuses, and he spent his clinical years at the Amarillo campus, which is one of the better ones for um, autonomy in physician training. He stayed on there and completed his training in family medicine, and then headed to McKinney, Texas, where he opened up uh, one of the uh, premier practices uh, in these uh, really growing, beautiful suburb north of Dallas. I've been so impressed since I've been up here now, uh, just starting out as a cardiologist within Dr. Proctor's um, uh, practice facility, which is terrific. And he has been a leader in early treatment of COVID-19 and uh, now in the era of vaccine injuries. But I've asked him to the microphone to really give us his perspectives on issues that really relate to medical ethics and what's going on, not necessarily with us, but with other doctors and healthcare providers. Dr. Proctor, welcome to the McCullough Report. Thanks, Peter. I'm glad to be here, and I'm, it's been a pleasure to welcome you to our practice. Well, it's certainly been terrific to uh, get here. I've enjoyed being pummeled uh, by you and the staff and learning another electronic medical record and all the difficulties that doctors go through and user IDs and passwords, but we're working through it. And I'm so gratified to uh, see that, you know, A, patients have, have, have arrived, they've shown up, they've uh, been welcomed into the practice. And for the first time, um, I've disenrolled from the commercial insurances and Medicare. So in a sense, this is the, the world of cash-based medicine. And can you tell us a little bit about that, uh, about how you innovated from traditional insurance-based to cash-based practice? So back in COVID, uh, the insurance companies basically, I got canceled in all sense of the word, canceled, just like people are on Twitter and everything else. So I got canceled by the insurance companies and didn't really have another option other than to basically go out on my own because eventually I would have been blacklisted from all of the insurance companies. So we made an executive decision, terminated our contracts with the rest of the insurance companies, gave them 90 days notice and decided to go out on our own. So we launched this new concept in our practice, which is kind of basically concierge medicine, but it's called direct primary care where patients pay extra to go see the doctor. And uh, we launched this uh, on March 1st of 2022. 
and we were initially very successful. We had a little bit of a hard time during the summer, last summer, but um, we've recovered nicely, and now we have lots of new patients coming to the office, and we are delivering exceptional care. I don't see any way how we could probably be doing a better job than we already are. So it's it's been great. Um, most practices that enter the DPC realm, it takes them about a year and a half to really get on their feet. And fortunately for us, we didn't suffer that long. We've been doing quite well um, despite, you know, enormous obstacles with, with transitions like this. So it's been great. That's terrific. What percent of doctors do you estimate uh, actually do this where they don't accept insurance and are involved in direct primary care? I would say it's probably 5%, but it's growing rapidly as more and more people get more and more providers and patients get disgruntled with the current healthcare system in America. Do you think it's more expensive, really, than insurance-based? You know, patients have co-pays, they have uh, deductibles, other things, uh, like a usual... Uh, uh, let's take me. I'm 60 years old. I have high blood pressure. Um, I, I'm on some cholesterol-lowering medicine. Uh, no cancers, no hospitalizations. Uh, uh, if you t took me, if I had a typical uh, insurance plan, uh, let's say I had a $4,000 deductible or $6,000 deductible, um, would it be better for me just to be in direct primary care? I think so, because you're still not going to meet your deductible. Um, the most deductibles for insurances run um, anywhere from $2,500 up to about $10,000. Our current um, plan is has a $7,500 deductible. So most of these patients are having to pay this money out of pocket to other doctors. It's the same amount of money. And then if they're referred out to specialists and things like that, that costs even more. So the costs tend to escalate. So a lot of these patients are meeting their deductibles when they ordinarily don't have to. So in the case of you, Peter, um, more than likely, you just have to come see us twice a year. So it'd be better to just kind of pay as you go. And if we did that, we could take care of you and the, the extra annual cost would be about $800. Or, or another option is patients who need to be seen more frequently or once a, even once a month, they can go on a monthly plan and that runs about $1,300 a year. Um, so whether they pay monthly or just kind of pay as you go, those are our two payment options for patients. And we've just simplified the entire process. We can still do referrals. We can still send in prescriptions. Uh, we specialize in assisting patients in finding cheaper ways to do things, whether it's to go see another specialist or, or like patients who don't have insurance, for example, can go get surgery and negotiate a cash price with the surgery center and the facility, the surgeon, the anesthesiologist, even pathology, and get everything done for a one lump sum. I have one gastroenterologist up in Anna, Texas, who can do a colonoscopy door-to-door, -door, which covers anesthesia, his fee, uh, the pathology fee, all of it for $1,250 for a colonoscopy, which is a good deal because every time I go get a colonoscopy every two years, it ends up costing me about 2000 out of pocket. Wow, that's a reminder. I, I'm coming up on my 10-year colonoscopy. I need to do, do it. Um, you know, I've, uh, we have a lot of patients who have Medicare over 65. I think 99% of people get Medicare over 65. 
uh, but then the, there's always a supplemental that actually costs them money. What about Medicare? What about a healthy person, person over 65, where they have the Medicare for the catastrophic hospital cost if they get hospitalized? Uh, wouldn't it be better to also do this? So most Medicare patients have a, a premium that they still have to pay every month. Usually, it's around anywhere from three hundred to five hundred dollars, and I guess that's based on their income. Um, my mother, for example, I think she's paying something like $500 a month. That's $6,000 a year. So basically, your deductible is $6,000 a year. So why carry the supplemental when Medicare will cover 20%? Well, Medicare will cover the 80% 80, 80 of the cost of everything, leaving the patient with 20% out of pocket. So that patient could be a patient of ours um, and drop their supplemental if they can or get a ch the cheapest supplemental that they can and just pay us cash out of pocket and probably come out ahead at the end of the year. Yeah, I know my my wife's uh, mom just got uh, Medicare and is costing us, I think, 600 bucks a month because she didn't pay into the system. Well, let's get into medical ethics. And uh, I know you and I have also faced the pressure of insurance companies um you know, denying certain things or uh, suggesting that we do or don't do something for a patient. And now with no insurance contracts, you don't have any obligations uh, to insurance companies, neither do I. Um, how does this play into ethically your choice of caring for a patient? It's been great because now for the first time in my entire career, I have complete autonomy to make my own decisions and the decisions that are in the best interest of the patient. So now it is purely a contract between the physician and the patient and everybody else, any third party is left out of the equation. The other thing is, is when you're in direct primary care like this, these medical records don't go anywhere. So the insurance companies cannot see your diagnoses. They can't see your medications. Well, they can see your medications if you file them under insurance. But if you pay cash, and we try to get the cheapest cash price for prescriptions that we can. For example, I have one pharmacy who will, will match the cheapest price they can find on GoodRx, and they've done a good job with that. But anyway, the idea here is that they don't know whether you've had COVID or a heart attack or a stroke or anything else. No one can see that but you. So your medical record is now completely confidential, which is the way things were supposed to be. No one else was supposed to be, be able to see your medical information. And when COVID started, they got rid of HIPAA and all confidentiality went out the window. Wow. And, you know, recently it was announced that they want doctors to code patients if they're unvaccinated. And I've given some public commentary on that. I said, that's pretty ridiculous because the CDC already knows who took a vaccine and who didn't. Uh, so they know everybody in the country. But here, if a patient said, listen, I don't, I don't want to be labeled one way or the other, uh, you keep it completely confidential. So my wife, Melissa, actually um, showed me that 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 code was coming out and potentially the insurance companies and Medicare are going to require that uh, code to be submitted whether or not you have been vaccinated for COVID-19. And if you're not vaccinated against COVID-19, they will be aware of that. So you will go into a database, they will be aware. Also, if the provider fails to provide that code that you're vaccinated or unvaccinated, they will not pay the provider's claim. So the provider is not going to get paid 
unless he reports the code to the insurance companies and or Medicare, which is shocking. So in DPC practices, your medical records are completely confidential, so those codes aren't, aren't ever reported. We keep everything confidential in your, in your chart, and the only, the only person who can share your chart with anybody else is you, the patient, which is the way it should be. Wow. So again, DPC means direct primary care, and we're talking about a really a relatively new thing. Uh, it really was the way it was many decades ago before the insurance companies got between the patient and the doctor, and now we're back to uh, what it seems to be just such a liberating uh, feeling to look after patients and take our time without being under the pressure of uh, practices that are being driven by the insurance companies. What issues did you see come up early in the COVID-19 crisis that you really felt uh, had important ethical implications? So when COVID first started, and I first heard about it in January of 2020, I thought to myself as a practicing licensed physician in Texas, what am I going to do if this thing comes to the United States? Supposedly all these people are dying in Wuhan and it was a terrible thing. And I thought, well, if it comes here, what are we going to do about it? So as soon as I could, in February of 2020, I started researching everything I could find about coronaviruses and how to treat this thing. I thought I was just doing what I was supposed to do. I took the Hippocratic Oath in 1997, and it actually meant something to me. So I wanted to practice according to the Hippocratic Oath. So I went and researched, like I was trained, everything I could find on how to kill this thing. And when it was time, I picked up a sword and a shield and put my helmet on. I went out on the battlefield and I, I attacked this thing head on. About a month into it, in April or so, um, I was astonished when I heard that the emergency rooms were just sending people home and telling them, to wait until they couldn't breathe anymore and then go back to the hospital and they'd put them on a ventilator. That was just shocking to me because I don't understand why a physician wouldn't wouldn't treat this thing as, as aggressively as possible as an outpatient. So that's when I got involved with you know the current trend with the America's frontline doctors and stuff like that. Um, to, to fight this thing. But I was shocked that my fellow physicians, regardless of specialty, didn't step out on the battlefield with me. They, they didn't do anything. A lot of them closed their practices and went home for up to a year and were doing telemed. I closed for two hours on the day the country was shut down. And the next day we opened up and we were ready to go. And we never closed after that. We never missed any hours after that. And we've been, and we ended up treating uh, about 2,600 COVID patients in my office, not in a parking lot, in my office, inside, where I examined every patient with a stethoscope. Another thing I was shocked for is my first COVID patient came out of the hospital and told me that the entire time he was in the hospital, a doctor never examined him, not the ER physician, not the ICU physician. No one touched my patient the entire time he was in the hospital. Aside from ethical implications of this, it's also insurance fraud if those physicians build Medicare or the insurance company. Most of those the doctors that saw him just stood in the doorway and talked to him from the doorway while the nurses, nursing staff did all the work. I was shocked. 
And that's when I thought, you know, there's an ethical problem here with this fight and this virus and this pandemic in this country. And so I started to speak out against it. It was a really extraordinary times. Uh, how you got on my radar screen is somebody sent me a picture of a scoreboard that you were keeping in your clinic of the number of cases seen, uh, the number of tests done, who tests positive, who clinically had COVID, and then uh, as patients recovered or uh, were hospitalized or uh, died, this was all kept on a scoreboard. And I didn't know of any other clinic at the time that was doing that. Later on, we had heard from uh, Brian Tyson and uh, George Farid in South Central California that they had more of an outdoor treatment facility. And they ultimately published a book with a monograph on their results, but no one was keeping such a clear public record. And it got sufficiently on my radar screen that I reached out to you, as you recall, and said, listen, uh, this is so important. We need to publish this practice experience. So what was it like when, uh, when things really got hot and heavy? Uh, what types of things were you doing here in the office to keep people out of the hospital? We had to basically invent and improvise how to, how to treat these patients. So we ordered more oxygen. So we had oxygen while they were in the office. We started doing IV therapy in the office with banana bags and other things to, to help rehydrate these people because dehydration was a big problem. And then we started using a, a, a multi-drug regimen, the one I came up with in February of 2020, to start treating these people. And as far as the, um, st the statistics board that we made, I was just doing what I thought every other physician should be doing. It's a new, it's a new diagnosis. It's a new problem. It's a new pandemic. We, sh we should be tracking all of our cases and, and what our case results were when we were treating them because all of that information... Uh, is extremely valuable and did prove valuable when when we uh, published the McCullough Protocol on how, on our early aggressive treatment of COVID nineteen. So we did a lot of things. Um, we used ivermectin. We used hydroxychloroquine. We used initially we used angiotensin receptor blockers. We used uh, CBD, uh, aspirin and a lot of vitamins to treat this thing. And of course, azithromycin is an antibiotic, which was pretty much the standard protocol that Zelenko was using up in New York and Dr. Raul was using um, out in France. So when I researched um, what I was gonna do about it, I read their stuff, but like anybody else, I wanted to verify. So always trust, but verify. So I did my own research in, in why they were using those things. And in the medical literature, some of it written actually by Dr. Fauci, told me that the best way to treat coronaviruses is to give the patient chloroquine because it opens up a channel in the cell wall, pushes zinc into the cell to kill the virus. So, and so Dr. Fauci played an integral role in me coming up with my initial protocol. And, and when was it that you adopted the use of steroids in your protocol? We pretty much started using steroids straight away, but low dose, um, despite them telling us, and we always gave the patient either a steroid shot or IV steroids in the office too, but then we were giving them um, an oral steroid course for about six days. But eventually we started to figure out that 
This is a disease of inflammation. And the more you attack this inflammation, the better off the patient is. Hence the reason for my CBD, because it was CBD is one of the most potent anti-inflammatories there is. So eventually we started using much higher dose of steroids in the patients that were somewhat critical or, or getting on the verge of needing hospitalization. And we were able to turn around a lot of those patients. And a lot of those patients were high risk patients with underlying risk factors. Yeah, I, I uh, uh, was also somewhat confused about the steroid literature, which was mixed initially. I remember some papers saying, you know, don't use steroids, you'll, you'll make the viral infection worse. Uh, but there's very few cases uh, where that's actually true. You know, when uh, there's viral, other forms of viral infections like shingles, uh, what have you, you know, we use uh, steroids uh, relatively liberally. Uh, so um, uh, I have to say it was probably for me April of 2020. Remember, uh, Pierre Corey testified in the Senate. That was the very first Senate hearing was on this controversy of steroids. And Corey came in really hard on this. He said, listen, steroids work. I've had enough experience with them. We should use them. And, you know, at the time that Corey testified that we should use steroids, do you know the official stance from all the regulatory associations uh, in the world, he has a table of this, was all, don't use steroids. So if you couldn't believe it, pure Corey, like you, and later on like me, we were right when all the uh, agencies and guidelines were wrong. It was, you know, looking back at the whole pandemic in the last three years of our lives, it's been amazing how correct our initial assumptions were about everything. Basically, the frontline docs and the people that actually got off their rear and fought this thing, we were right about virtually everything. Um, I can't think of anything in the initial letter I wrote that went viral all over the world. I can't think, I, I read it again the other day, and every statement I made in that letter that I wrote in May of 2020 has proven to be true. Every single one of them. And I had a lot of naysayers, backlash, cancellations. I got canceled from Twitter. I got canceled from Facebook. I got canceled for everything. And you know, at the end, I didn't care because eventually I gave up my accounts anyway and just started fighting uh, under the table is a warrior in this thing and just kept up the fight, kept up my contacts and things like that. And I feel like we came out on top of this thing in the end, the people that, that, that treated this thing. Again, I don't, I think every licensed physician, regardless of specialty, had an ethical obligation to stand up and start seeing patients in their office with COVID at any age. I trained a pediatrician in Houston. Everybody knows her. her name's Angelina Farella, and she's a pediatrician. She she got off her rear, started using the protocol, opened up an adult clinic within her pediatric practice, and started treating patients. Another doctor, well known to this crowd, is Dr. Richard Urso in Houston. He's actually an ophthalmologist and specializes in ophthalmologic oncology. And he also treated patients in his office. I think everybody should have done that regardless of specialty. For me, it was easy because I was family practice. But to see some of these doctors that treated it regardless of specialty, we even have a pathologist who treated patients. So I think everybody should have treated patients. And if we had done that, then at least 85% of the people that passed away from this disease would still be alive today. You know, I think that's a very reasonable estimate. And 
you know, you like me and so many others, we were versatile. We were willing to work with different drugs. I never really got uh, too wedded to any particular drug. I wanted to be adaptable. Uh, I've been recently impressed with uh, the data on using Montelukast or a singular. Uh, Dr. Sankaret Chetty down in South Africa taught me about that, as well as the use of promethazine, cyproheptadine. Uh, I never use the antiandrogens, but I know Dr. Flavio Catagiani in Brazil and Pierre Corey and others. Did you ever use antiandrogens? No, I no, I didn't. I um, I did toy around with monolucast or singular, but um, and I I tried some other things here and there. But remember, early on we were publishing that paper, so I was trying to keep my protocol as constant as possible during the time. So I only added things occasionally, and in the end, you know, later on, about six months into the pandemic, I started to get much more aggressive with ivermectin. And my hospitalization rate even got even lower after that. And we started having less hospitalizations. We treated, you know, hundreds and hundreds of patients in 2022. And at that point, we had modified things to the point where in the entire calendar year of 2022, we only had two hospitalizations. That's amazing. I only had one in my practice uh, in uh, downtown Dallas, not nearly as large as yours. And when I asked the patient, I said, what happened? He goes, they put me in the hospital and I didn't need it. He felt like I got, he got put in jail. He was perfectly fine and, and there were no consequences, but uh, that was 2022. The one thing that um, I didn't have the privilege of doing because I just didn't have such a wonderful facility like this was the use of intravenous therapies in the clinic, forms of vitamins. You explained a banana bag. So a lot of our listeners are from Australia, Europe, and elsewhere. Explain the rationale of giving IV fluids, vitamins uh, to a sick patient with, a, let's say, COVID, or it could be influenza or other conditions. It's, it's crazy that I had some patients that got out of the hospital or came to see us after for, for the first time after being in the hospital that were never even given IV fluids the entire time they were in the hospital. Some of these patients, they never even started an IV line, which I was just shocking. What we found out as we went along is that the shortness of breath with this disease was twofold. One was being caused by acute dehydration from the disease. And that dehydration needed to be treated. So we treated it in the office. And we, we some of these patients, we would give them up to 2,000 milliliters of fluid as a bolus. And they would take it and their vital signs would normalize. Their O2 sat would come up and we were able to send them home um, just on the oral, oral regimen. So, But the IV therapy was a huge game changer for us because we were able to stabilize and rehydrate people in the office and send them on their way. And then once they had the regimen in them for about 24 hours to 48 hours, they started feeling better. Now, in the um, IV fluids, you can give uh, you know normal saline, ringer's lactate, half normal saline, so you pick a solution. But you were also using various forms of vitamins. We uh, used we used normal saline, and then we added to that normal saline what's called a rally pack, which is basically some little vials that are full of vitamins. And that combined with the the 0.9% normal saline is called a banana bag. And they call it a banana bag because it's really bright, bright, bright yellow. So, and the patients were always impressed with that because they, they thought they were getting something special because the bag of fluids was yellow. But, and they were. They were getting a lot of B12, vitamin C, other vitamins. 
And uh, they responded well because when you give somebody an IV bolus full of vitamins, they, they generally all feel better. Later on in the disease, we were able, we were a lot more successful in getting home oxygen delivered to the patients to keep them out of the hospital the same day. Early on, we had a very difficult time getting home oxygen set up for these people that were really struggling. And I think that's why we ended up having more hospitalizations than, than, than I was comfortable with. Um, we had about 30 total, which seems like nothing in the grand scheme of things when we treated 2,600 people, but even 30 was an unacceptable amount for me. But if I could have gotten patients and sent patients home from my office with oxygen, I, could, I think that I could have kept all but maybe two or three out of the hospital. And how many deaths? We had three deaths in the, in the, in, since we started treating it, a total of three. We had one more, but this patient was interesting. This patient was a 72-year-old male who was used to running about three miles every day in the shape of his life, hadn't seen a doctor in 25 years. He was in perfect physical condition, had no medical problems, no, no chronic meds, and he came in and saw us for the first time, got the regimen, took it home, and put it all on the kitchen counter and told his wife that this was too much trouble, I'm not doing it. And so a week later, he came back into the office and his O2 sats were in the, the 70s and we ended up sending him to the hospital. And he continued, uh, his condition declined over the course of three weeks or so and he actually passed away from the disease. So I didn't include him in our statistics because his wife admitted to me that he never took the regimen that would have saved his life. Oh, that's such a tragedy. So the lack of early treatment, perfectly consistent with the work by Vertkirk and colleagues that showed the only people hospitalized who died in the United States were those who didn't receive any early treatment. We've been talking to Dr. Brian Proctor uh, here in McKinney, Texas, uh, at McKinney Family Medicine. Uh, and uh, we're going to pick up on the other side and get into some of the medical ethics surrounding the COVID-19 vaccine campaign. You're listening to The McCullough Report. Let's get real. Let's get loud. On America Out Loud Talk Radio, this is The McCullough Report. Let's get real. Let's get loud. On America Out Loud Talk Radio, this is The McCullough Report. And I'm Dr. Peter McCullough. I have to tell you that I think one of the biggest advances in nutraceuticals and supplements is healthy cell. And the healthy cell line is extensive. I typically focus on the microgel technology, three major products here, Immune Super Boost, the Focus and Recall, and then the REM Sleep Supplement. Each one of these is complementary and they can uh, have a role, I think, in the health of your life each and every day. I know they do in my case. Many of you know, after COVID-19 twice, I spent almost the entire year in 2022 with the upper respiratory tract illness. Now, thankfully, I'm through the first two months of 2023, and I've been diligent with the Immune Super Boost in the morning, followed by focus and energy, and then in the evening time, the REM sleep supplement. The microgel technology works, and boy, does it work fast. So go to our website, America Out Loud Talk Radio, find the banner bar for Healthy Cell, click on it, and that'll take you to the site to get a discount 
on your purchase of all Healthy Cell products. So let's get real. Let's get loud on America Out Loud Talk Radio. This is a McCullough Report. These days, every time you turn on the news, it seems like there's a new threat to your health. Maintaining a strong immune system has never been more critical. Advanced nutrition company, Healthy Cell, created Immune Super Boost to help you strengthen your immunity. Unlike other supplements that don't work, Immune Super Boost is not a pill. It's a gel you swallow with ultra-absorption of science-backed nutrients proven to support immunity, like vitamin C, D3, zinc, elderberry, and echinacea. These physician-formulated gels come in a small gel pack. Tear off the top and shoot it down, or mix it in water. Boost your immunity. Go to HealthyCell.com and use limited time code OUTLOUD for 25% off your first order. Risk-free. Love it or your money back. Guaranteed. HealthyCell.com. Code OUTLOUD. HealthyCell.com. Code OUTLOUD. AmericaOutloud.com. If you can't find it here, you can't find it anywhere. We are the pulse and voice of everyday American thought, working hard to earn your trust for seven incredible years and counting. America Out Loud Talk Radio, the liberty and justice for all. Trouble getting to sleep and staying asleep is infuriating. Your mind races, you toss and turn, and the harder you try, the harder it is to drift off. And today's fast-paced digital age makes it tougher. You're not alone. Poor sleep affects over 70% of us. The CDC even labeled insufficient sleep a public health epidemic. Advanced nutrition company, Healthy Cell, created REM sleep to help you quickly fall asleep, stay asleep, sleep deep, and wake refreshed. Unlike other supplements that don't work, REM sleep is not a pill. It's a gel you swallow with ultra-absorption of science-backed ingredients, supporting all four stages of sleep using calming herbs, amino acids, and sleep hormone support. Over a thousand reviews with an average star rating of over 4.4 proves it works. Take back your sleep. Go to HealthyCell.com and use limited time code OUTLOUD for 25% off your first order. Risk-free. Love it or your money back. Guaranteed. HealthyCell.com. Code OUTLOUD. HealthyCell.com. Code OUTLOUD. Let's get real. Let's get loud on America Out Loud Talk Radio. This is the McCullough Report, and I'm Dr. Peter McCullough. I'm here with Dr. Brian Proctor, and we're on the backside of the McCullough Report. You're getting used to his kind of army command voice, and he seems like he's a take charge type of guy. And let me tell you, I know him pretty well now, and he is taking charge. He took charge during COVID-19, and Dr. Proctor, like myself, has been, I think, in many ways, kind of shocked, disappointed, um, horrified with what we've seen on the COVID-19 mass vaccination program. So tell me about your views early on. The vaccines, a Pfizer vaccine was approved December 10th, 2020. Tell me what your mindset was when the vaccines were in development and then they were released. When they launched Operation Warp Speed, I think back as early as May 2020, I, I didn't understand why we needed a vaccine in the first place when early early aggressive multi-drug therapy was so effective, which is what we had seen by May uh, 2020. And there were multiple papers 
that were published early on that showed that this stuff was effective. And then, you know, our joint papers were published, I believe, in August of 2020 and again in, in December of that year, showing an 85% reduction in hospitalizations. But I couldn't understand if we could reduce the hospitalizations so much with early aggressive treatment and cure these people, why do we need an experimental vaccine? And the fact that the vaccine was going to be improperly studied and tested prior to its release made me very skeptical about the safety of this vaccine moving forward and the potential complications and effect it could have on patients. And then I found out that it was a genetic vaccine, that the vaccine uses messenger RNA. My undergraduate degree from University of Texas was in molecular biology. So I was a little bit familiar with the whole DNA process and messenger RNA. And I thought to myself, these people are going to be receiving a piece of genetic code. What if that genetic code fuses with their own DNA in multiple cells in multiple organs? And that's exactly what has happened. And there's a paper that shows that... Who's, who did the paper? There's a paper that shows that the vaccine... Uh, fuses with our own DNA within six hours of the injection. And I'm, I'm just shocked by that. But early on, I didn't understand why we needed a vaccine because early aggressive treatment was all the treatment we needed for virtually all of these patients. They could have waited, they could have rolled out an early aggressive treatment protocol and used that until we adequately tested an effective and safe vaccine for everyone. Well, two protocols were in print format, one by the Association of American Physicians and Surgeons, October of 2020. I work with Dr. Lee Lead on that furiously to try to produce a document. Pierre Corey, Paul Merrick, and others produced the FLCC uh, initials. So we had some things in place. You know, FLCC, I give them a great credit. They actually had the first inpatient protocol in print and available in March of 2020. I mean, basically, you know, a month into it, I give them great credit. Now, the Infectious Disease Society of America had three or four versions of an inpatient treatment protocol, very nihilistic, and the first NIH treatment protocol only dealt with inpatients, and that was published October of 2020. So we had good treatment protocols. The vaccine came in December of 2020. Now, here in McKinney, you look after an elderly mother. And did it come into your mind that you should take the vaccine to protect your mother? My mother's situation was kind of funny. My mother actually is 80 years old, and I live with her four days a week because I have a ranch far away, and that's where my wife and one of my kids are. But anyway, my mom's an interesting case because my mom got the disease when I got the disease. We both got sick at the same time at the end of November 2020. We both stayed home. We took the treatment for two weeks. We got over it. And after that, my mom heard about the vaccine. And she goes, I don't need a vaccine. I'm immune. I already had the disease. Why do I need a vaccine? And she kept going to her book club and seeing her friends. And her friends harassed her about getting the vaccine and put all this pressure on her to go get the vaccine immediately or she's going to die. And she goes, I just don't understand why I need a vaccine if I've already had the disease. And she's right. She didn't need the vaccine. 
um, because she's she's immune. She had the disease, and that immunity is a lot better than any immunity that that vaccine has ever been shown to bestow upon people. Wow, I know. This is actually a great story. Trust your mom. I was ahead of you. I had COVID about a month ahead of you, my wife and I, and uh, you know, I wanted to really be scientific. I, I wanted to be in a treatment protocol, so it took me a few days to get in it. So I got a little bit behind on treatment. I did get in a hydroxychloroquine-based protocol that was FDA approved by the um, by the FDA. It was uh, certainly had all the um, you know consent forms and an institutional review board. And I ended up taking hydroxychloroquine, azithromycin. Uh, aspirin, the nutraceuticals and supplements, but you know I did develop pulmonary involvement, so I went on steroids um, and uh, was ultimately able to get through it. My wife had a much easier time, and so like you, when the vaccines came out, for my personal choice, when I was approached regarding the vaccine, uh, I said, "Well, boy, you know I, I have immunity. There should be no reason why I should take it." But my mom was uh, here in Dallas, and she's in independent living, and boy, this was a discussion. She's 83. Uh, she has some medical problems. And interestingly, my mom, during one of the flu seasons, one of the more severe flu seasons, when she was in college in the 1950s, they had a mass vaccination program. And so they lined up the kids, and they were using one of the guns. Remember the vaccine guns where they used to just shoot them in the arm? My mom uh, took a vaccine in the arm, and she developed some type of reaction, acute reaction. She um, was unconscious. She was rushed to the hospital. She lost nine days of her life. She actually doesn't remember what happened back then. Remember back then, there's no cell phones, no computers. I'm not sure they even uh, you know, contacted family. She lost a week of school. So my mom was always reticent uh, to take more vaccines because of this severe, some type of severe reaction to a flu vaccine. So when all these discussions went on, and here she is in independent living, you can imagine the pressure that she received. And she held out, she held out. She said, no, I'm not sure I should take it. And boy, when the safety data came in, she was able to dodge COVID all the way until the Omicron outbreak. And it was the summer of 2022 where she developed Omicron. She got the McCullough protocol and she was over it in five days. So she's through it too. And so um, I can tell you, she may be one of the few elderly people, your mom and my mom, who never took the vaccine. Now, did your mom get a second case? She doesn't think so, but we, we frequently argue about it because I, I, I ended up, I, I believe, with Omicron in January of 2022. And a couple of weeks before that, my mom kind of had a bad cold, and I kind of thought that that was Omicron and that she gave it to me, but I'm not sure. I could have gotten it from a patient. Who knows? Um, but, you know, it's it's interesting. Her her first case, the, the her initial case of covid um, that we know she had in November of 2020, she she did have some respiratory involvement, mainly a, a really bad cough. And I, you know, sometimes she would have a coughing fit where I actually started to get worried um, that she was going to get worse. But, you know, it never really escalated beyond this horrible cough with coughing fits. We were, neither one of us were, were ever short of breath. We didn't wheeze or anything like that. Um, and the just a little bit of a productive cough, but my mom had a, what I would think in, in your average elderly patient was a, a relatively mild case. So I think she was lucky. And today she has thoroughly resisted the vaccine, still hasn't gotten it. 
Some of her friends still argue with her, but a lot of her friends regret getting the vaccine now that the truth has come out about the horrors of, of the COVID-19 vaccines. And also, my last point here is that, you know, based on everything we've found out about this vaccine and the fact that Moderna has at least 20 more messenger RNA vaccines planned, it is very difficult for the public to trust American vaccines anymore. Most of my current patients will probably never voluntarily take a vaccine again. And you can throw myself in there, my mother in there. This is the first year in 23 years that I have not had a COVID vaccine, I, that I haven't had a flu vaccine, I'm sorry. So are you saying that this vaccine debacle with COVID-19 vaccines, in a sense, is it really lessened or just completely um, squelched any more interest or thirst for vaccines? No flu shot? No um, tetanus shots? Shingle shots? And it's, it's, not, it's not just the vaccines. It's, it's any access to the healthcare system now is being questioned by patients, whether it's something that they should avoid at all costs or not. Because the public, this, this whole debacle has destroyed the public's trust in the American healthcare system. And I hear about it every day from multiple patients. It's not just my own opinion. It's multiple patients. And they don't trust the system anymore. And they don't know who they can trust. And they're worried about their future. They're worried what happens when they get older, if they get cancer. Where are they going to turn to get adequate, state-of-the-art healthcare treatment. And it's it's scary. These are very difficult times. But I would say that the, the, the biggest, the most crushing aspect of all of this is that the American public's faith in the healthcare system has been permanently damaged. I don't know how it will recover. Um, one of the things about direct primary care, what we do at our office, is we work on relationships with our patients. And through those relationships, we believe that we can achieve optimal health. These relationships and the typical family practice out there, these relationships are no longer made. You don't even know which provider you're going to see from visit to visit. There's no continuity of care. And you seem to be treated in these other practices like just a number. So COVID has kind of made everything worse in the American healthcare system. It's like Wizard of Oz, where the curtain has been pulled back, revealing the truth about the inadequacies of Western medicine, modern medicine, the American healthcare system, and the healthcare system in multiple other countries. Wow. You know, it, 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 just to exemplify that, this week uh, a lot of our uh, listeners will know that the Children's Health Defense has uh, published a story in at uh, of a mother who br br who brought in two children, I believe under age 12. She was out in the waiting room trying to uh, handle an infant, and so the doctor saw the two children without the mother being in the room, and then without the mother's consent, both children received the COVID-19 vaccine, and the mother is completely outraged. The Children's Health Defense has uh, taken up a legal representation of the mother. This is an example of loss of trust. I mean, what, what, where are the ethical issues now that you start to see emerging regarding the vaccines, patients, doctors? 
Well, there seems to be a disconnect on who has authority over the youth in this country. Uh, from the schools to now physicians, by this case, um, other people seem to think that they have a right to control or treat or inject or whatever other people's children, which is astonishing to me because we've never seen that in American history. Um, the, the only person making child decisions should be, should be their, their, their legal guardian or their parent, period. No one else should have any right to dictate what, what the health care or schooling is of, of, of these kids. And for these, these teachers and doctors and healthcare professionals to just do whatever they want with our children is extremely unethical. And it's not going over well. We've seen multiple cases in, in our country um, where, where parents are outraged against schools, against physicians, etc. Because it seems to me like the government is trying to take control over everybody's health care, including our children. And they're trying to do that regardless if the parents give consent for whatever treatment or, or not. And it's, it's shocking to me. And that makes me think that the direction this country's headed, a lot of it caused by this pandemic, is, is it's, it's not good. And I don't know how we're going to get out of it. Well, maybe one way we're going to get out of it is patients seeing independent physicians. If a, if a f uh, mother came here with their children to your practice and they said, doctor, I want to go natural, I... I don't want my children to receive any vaccines. Would you respect that position? Yes, I would certainly respect that. And uh, we don't carry vaccines anymore um, in my office, so we don't offer them to patients. They're readily available at pharmacies. If if the patients want to go get a COVID vaccine and they're just adamant about it, then they can go get a COVID vaccine, and that's fine. If they come here and they've had COVID vaccines, that's fine too. Um, but... It's the, the entire situation with all of this vaccine business has been incredibly difficult. So we, we don't judge people whether they've been vaccinated against this disease or that disease in our practice. And if they, want to, if they want us to take a more natural approach or a holistic approach, we will fight to deliver that approach. In other words, if they bring me ideas that they want me to consider, I will independently re research uh, these potential treatments and et cetera that are natural or more holistic and uh, get back to the patient. And then a lot of times we've implemented those and I've honored their wishes. And it's something that I can do now because I don't have insurance companies telling me how to treat patients. Yeah, that's incredibly liberating. I remember... Uh, in my prior clinics that I would staff at the big medical center, there was a huge push, for example, for adults for influenza vaccine every year. And you know, I didn't really think too much about it. I, I took it myself and, and the patients were, you know, were offered or strongly encouraged the influenza vaccine. And then a huge push for the pneumococcal vaccine. And in the last couple of years, the efficacy on reducing hospitalization and death with the pneumococcal vaccine or just even reducing binary influenza was statistically insignificant from zero. So I, I've really been disappointed how ineffective 
some of these routine adult uh, vaccines have been. So uh, it's a new day. I, I think you're right. People will, will you know, have a greater degree of choice. Now, they will pay for it, but it probably won't be much different than what they would have to pay for uh, co-pays or uh, deductibles, and they may re reconfigure their insurances just to cover catastrophic big-ticket things like hospitalization. So it's interesting with direct patient care and kind of my approach to this whole idea is that the value must exceed the cost. And I spend the vast majority of my days now trying to figure out how to make sure that the value of seeing a DPC provider vastly outweighs the extra cost. And I think we're delivering such good quality of care uh, now that we're actually achieving that. You know, our, our patients have direct access to providers. We have a text number that all of our patients have. They can text us with anything. Sometimes they text us with just articles they want us to read or things that they want us to look into. Other times they just text if they need a refill or if they have a problem. They can send us pictures of a rash that they've developed. And a lot of this stuff we can treat a lot more readily in real time than, than having to worry about an appointment and getting them in. We can just go ahead and start them on some kind of treatment and follow them up in the office in a couple of days. So it has tremendously expedited the their ability to obtain adequate health care in this direct patient care system. That's absolutely terrific. And uh, I think you're going to see a lot more patients and a lot more doctors gravitate to this. And people will realize it's worth it to pay for this type of choice. I, I, I know a lot of patients that feel uncomfortable about having the vaccines forced on them in a different way, that is through use of this unvaccinated code and then ultimately uh, either getting kicked out of a practice or having the vaccine forced on them. Uh, well, this has been a terrific interview. Uh, do you have any final words for the McCullough Report audience? Particularly, you know, we've touched on some of these uh, ethical issues. Are there, is there another, you know, any other things that really strike your mind right now that you'd like to get on, on tape with our audience? What I'd like to get on tape is from the world population, I would like to express our sincere thanks to Dr. Peter McCullough for everything he has done. He is, is truly the warrior in all of this. Um, I always think of him as the three-star general that really, really took charge of this entire pandemic for all of us, for all of humanity. And I don't think he's been recognized near enough for his accomplishments in this area, much less his other accomplishments his entire career. And I think it's it's just been an honor knowing you, Peter, and everything you've done. And now I get to work with you every day, which makes me feel like the the luckiest doctor on on earth to 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 be in your presence and being be, and have the opportunity to look to learn from you going forward. So from the world, I just want to thank you. I think you deserve the Nobel Prize in Medicine. I just want to get that out there because you have made more of an impact on earth and humanity than any doctor I can think of in my entire career. Wow, those are the nicest words anybody's ever said to me, and certainly on the McCullough Report. I'm equally honored. In fact, we'll learn from each other. I'm a bit older, but um, I, I don't have the versatility that you have. We've already uh, learned and exchanged some great ideas. 
uh, for many people who reach out to us, uh, they want to know actually where I practice and now where Dr. Brian Proctor practices. And it is in McKinney, Texas, a wonderful suburb north of Dallas. Many of our patients fly in from out of town. Uh, it's McKinney Family Medicine. We have, we're sitting in now the cardiovascular unit within the building. It's a wonderful uh, building, terrific staff, been stable, people working here for years, extremely well managed. We're at 7692 El Dorado Parkway, I found this on Mc the web. McKinney, Texas, 75070. The main number to the office is 972-562-8388. Appointments with Dr. McCullough, 972-369-8220. The website is uh, www.mckinneyfamilymed.com, www.mckinneyfamilymed.com. And in our preferences, we're so busy that you have inpatient appointments. We're not going to have the reach to do telemedicine, certainly across the United States or the world. But again, patients come in, and once you're on base, we've seen and examined you, uh, we have a chance to do uh, critical diagnostics here, then we can handle it from that point forward. But we do welcome so many people reach out to us. Uh, but we ask for inpatient appointments uh, and, and not to try to engage in uh, so many email conversations with the practice. We're overwhelmed right now. I, ever since I've announced that I've come in up here to McKinney, I, the staff has been absolutely overwhelmed. This has been a terrific interview. Thanks, thank you so much for having us on the McCullough Report. Thank you, Peter, for having me on. Let's get real. Let's get loud on America Out Loud Talk Radio. This is the McCullough Report.